This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha and Simons. It's Friday. You know what that means around here. It's time to make sense of the biggest local and statewide stories in our weekly news recap. Two migrant families were moved yesterday after multiple curfew violations at the old Super 8 Motel, now a migrant shelter in Rogers Park. In just a few weeks, thousands of CPS students are heading back to the classroom, but how they're getting there may soon change. The district is trying to tackle a bus driver shortage. Dr. Allison Arwoody is gone as the city's top public health official. Mayor Brandon Johnson has picked Chicago Police Counterterrorism Chief Larry Snelling to be Chicago's new police superintendent. So here to dive deep into those stories and much more is Chalkbeat Chicago Bureau Chief Becky Vivi, And we've got Monica Ang, Chicago reporter for Axios. Also joining us is Chicago Tribune State Government reporter Dan Petrella. Welcome to you all. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks for having us. We're going to start with the City Hall news that kicked off the week. Mayor Johnson decided to go with a CPD insider to lead the police department. Monica, tell us about Larry Snelling. Larry Snelling is a uh, born and bred Chicagoan. He's from Englewood. He's been on the force for a long time. He's he's led the counterterrorism force, and um, he's developed the department's current uh, force training model around best practices and constitutional policing. Um, but he's also an insider. Uh, so, you know, there's this pendulum swing. Let's go with an outsider. They can fix the problems. Let's go with an yeah. insider. They'll have the, you know, the support of the rank and file. And so we're back to insider. And he's he's with the program. He's, he's quoting some of the Brandon Johnson catchphrases of competence, compassion and collaboration. The three C's. The three C's. I love, I love, you know, it's like it's almost like soul of Chicago. We're going to be hearing that a lot. Um, but I would say the three things he's really going to struggle with are safety, reform and morale. And those are sometimes at odds with each other. You know, how do you, like, be on the side of everybody who's like, it needs to be safer, but how do you, like, shore up the morale of a demoralized force? And how do you keep completing the consent decree? And what's the general reaction to this choice? Well, um, maybe the reason why he was chosen is because really nobody kind of hates this. You know, even from the right, he's not getting a lot of flack. So I think he may just be uh, confirmed. Yeah, from the FOP. Yeah. They, they're not, not bad, yeah, yeah, they're not mad about it. Reform, other, reformer, progressive reformers, not even the conservative um, alders have piped up. And it seems also like the rank and file do like him. Yeah. Yeah. It's an impossible job, though. Yeah. Um, kind of like the mayor is an impossible <laughs> job. <laughs> but he still needs city council approval. Right. Um, that looks like it's going to come, but we'll see. Well, Mayor Johnson also did something major. Uh, he may have chosen an insider to be Chicago's top cop. But he decided to get rid of the city's top doc. Becky, you were on reset earlier in the week talking about this story. But catch us up on the drama around Dr. Allison Arwadi. Right. It's such an end of an era because she became this sort of household name in the last few years when COVID uh when COVID came upon us and she was similar to Dr. Fauci as on like a local level, people really looked to uh, her and her weekly Facebook chats to provide guidance around COVID. But of course, uh, she was sort of on the side of Mayor Lori Lightfoot when um, when it came to school reopening and Brandon Johnson, the CTU, really clashed on that issue with her um, drama last Friday. Uh, he, she was told 
you are no longer a city employee. And uh, she went, she took to, to X, formerly known as Twitter, to mm-hmm. say that, you know, she didn't get to say goodbye to her staff and that she thought it was really problematic how, how the uh, departure was handled. Obviously, new mayor comes in. I think most officials in those positions know that their job's no longer guaranteed and there's some sort of changing of the guard that occurs and I think she knew that that was potentially coming given well, he said their that. differences and he said <laughs> he it on said the campaign it. trail yeah. of course um, but what is interesting here too will be um, the the number two is uh, re- also resigned and I believe is done at the end of the month and so the number three person who's not a doctor is I going to I guess going to be interim and Johnson hasn't really given any clues as to who he will pick to lead that department Um at a time when we still have a lot of federal COVID money um, being spent down, at least in the school system and at the public health department. And that department has gone through a lot of changes. And so where that department goes under his leadership will be um, is still a big question mark. And she's I, and also, I haven't heard anything. Yeah, about. And she's also gone on a little bit of a press tour this week. She has. Yes. She told done, Mariah that, you know, she that she'd never met with him. Yes. And, and any time yeah. the press. Mariah she, here at W. Right. Mariah Wolfel. Yeah. And, and every time the press has asked uh, Mayor Johnson, did you even ever meet with her? Always deflected. Yeah. Yeah, and he he did quote Tupac, Tupac. <laughs> this realize, week. Realize, realize, realize. realize. Yeah. yeah, and you know she did. She did again. She has not been a media shy person, so she did go on her you know press tour and and like she said a couple of times, I think to NBC Five and even to uh, Mariah WBEZ that her issue is not that she's gone. It's more that like the way it was done is maybe going to send signals to other people who might be interested in the job that. Uh, you know, that's not uh, an appealing position to be in. The timing was weird, too, politically, because he, like you said, telegraphed during the campaign that he was going to do it. But then he waits three Waited, months yeah. and then he doesn't have a replacement on hand to say, I'm getting rid of her because I'm putting this person in her place. So it was all just handled very, very And again, he told Maria Wolfel day after the camp, uh, day after the election, I look forward to sitting down with her and talking to her. So what happened to the sit-down? I mean, you could invite realize, her to lunch. Realize, realize, that's what happened. <laughs> that's what happened. Uh, but, but Dan, you know, she was this voice of reason and reassurance for many Chicagoans when we were on lockdown. Um, of course, a lot of people did not agree with her recommendations. You know, we were a divided, maybe not as divided as the country, but there was division on masking and, and dining mm-hmm. and, and schools. But how do you think this decision by the mayor to can her is going to go over with the public or is con- going to continue to go over with the public? You know, it's, it's interesting. I think that, um, you know, he, she is a popular figure um, and she didn't get to leave of her own accord like uh, Dr. Azike on the state level did where she left for another job at a, at a, con- a time that was convenient for her. Or you know? any of the other commissioners. Right, right. right. Yeah. The sort of un- unceremonious dismissal, I think, um, you know, will r- raise questions about Johnson's leadership, the way he's handling these appointments, and um, again, you know, whether he will live up to his words, like when he says he's going to meet with people and, and doesn't, or apparently doesn't. Well, and I would say also that before the um, before the COVID pandemic hit, um, progressives had some issues with Arwitty and her stance on the closure of mental health clinics under former former Mayor Rahm Emanuel, and so um, I think Brandon Johnson's supporters often were sort of. Uh, you know, wanting her out for those reasons. They had nothing to do with the pandemic. But I do think there are questions, you know, pre-pandemic too. The public health commissioner was not, like, it's a tiny, it was a tiny sort of back 
Uh, Those of us who covered public health, but it was a small department in City Hall, and it wasn't considered one of these top picks that the mayor came in and made. Yeah, and so you know, Dan, a lot of people think that this is just another example of Johnson being beholden to the teachers union. But I saw, you know, immediately progressives were putting out their own tweets, you know, Saturday morning, saying, you know, saying why they thought already was was trash. Um, but is the perception of the CTU going to overtake any other criticisms that progressives might have had about her? Yeah, you know, I think that label is going to be on the mayor until he, um, if he at some point does something where he gets out of step with the CTU. I think every decision that he makes is going to be viewed through that lens, especially if it's a decision that aligns with the point of view of the of the teachers union and especially if he doesn't explain like if he said oh you know you know cranes is positing that this was all over the mental health clinics and if he said that then it wouldn't look like he's beholden to the ctu but he's not explaining why she went this is reset i'm natalie moore in for sasha and simons and you're listening to our weekly news recap our panel today is becky Vivi of chalk beach chicago monica ang of axios and dan petrella of the chicago tribune you can email your questions and comments on these stories right now to reset at wbez.org or tweet us at wbez reset so becky and i have already been talking about are we ready for chicago public schools to start on monday as parents of um children in cps so suburbs have already started many going back this week how are things going uh, i mean so far we haven't heard a whole bunch of um haven't heard a whole bunch of tip uh it seems like things are pretty smooth sailing and also very much back to back to back to normal um you know last year we were still under some of the emergency orders so there were covid guidelines that the state was sending out to schools though most schools were going back with sort of this recommendation of masking and some limited quarantining if you were you know positive for covid um a couple things i know chicago public schools has signaled that they are getting rid of their in-school testing um we know downstate that a lot of the testing that uh, shield was doing for suburban districts they closed that site in June. They're not doing that anymore. So, um, you know, I think things are off to a, a back to almost like a new normal start. And with CPS on Monday, thousands of students will not have bus service. Yeah. What is going on? Yes. So this is uh, a continuing issue that uh, really started about three years ago, two years ago. Um, there has been a bus driver shortage, but piled on top of that, Chicago Public Schools has had difficulty sort of realigning and and getting students assigned to bus routes. Um, And they've changed up how they've approached it. And earlier this month, they sent essentially a notice to to families and to to parents that that if you hadn't requested transportation as of a very early date in August, you weren't gonna be guaranteed it you weren't gonna be getting it and they have said that they are prioritizing students with disabilities uh students who have individualized education plan plans ieps uh for those services because uh they're they're only gonna there's something like i think it's eight thousand that they say just won't have bus service they're not um, extending bus service to magnet and selective enrollment students who live a certain distance away from home. Um, 
in order to prioritize students with disabilities. And, and, and I anticipate and, 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 and unhoused and students yes, yes. Who students have, who are entitled to it by law. That's yeah. correct. So students who are unhoused and um, I I anticipate that we'll be pretty busy uh, Monday with. I don't think it's gonna. I think there will be hiccups. I'll just say that. <laughs> I was one thing that I that I've heard about. You know, this not having bus service, particularly for a magnet and selective enrollment, is this going to uh, broaden inequities in the school system? I hadn't thought about it that way, but have you heard that or put any any thought into what lack of busing means for students from other neighborhoods going to? Well, I mean, that is also gets into a broader question about the system we've set up in Chicago, where a lot of people participate in some form of choice, um, whether that's a magnet or a selective test in school, or they choose a charter, or they choose a school that's different than their neighborhood school. Um, busing's obviously, like I said, not guaranteed uh, for all of those situations. But if you are not, you know... A, it could lead to inequities because if you don't have the ability to drive your kid a couple miles away from your home twice a day, that is um, a challenge and it makes you make a different decision, a decision that, you know, would maybe be not the best school for your child, but you're having to make it because of logistics. Monica? Um, a couple of other things we're looking at as school starting on Monday um, at Axios is that for the first time in recent memory, the mayor is sending his kids back to school yeah. in uh, CPS. And, you know, I think that shows a little more skin in the game. Um, this is the first year in 18 years we're not sending a kid to CPS. I know. I, I didn't want to get you emotional <laughs> on, but I was. I, so when was the. OK, so. I looked, backward. I looked backward really far and did I did not find like a single anybody. Mayor. I think Harold he Washington may be the have kids. No, nope. Jane Byrne well, didn't, Jane Byrne didn't, didn't have, send her kids. Didn't send her kids. Michael Bildanik. Bildanik didn't. The Dailies all went Catholic. Jay Daly did went, not. And M. Daly did not. Yeah. And, um, and Lori. I mean, yeah, I, mean I was going we, way back, and I mean, I started to get to the point where I'm like, I don't even know if these people had did, kids. Where did Sir um, Max's kids go to <laughs> yeah. school? It's possible. That's why you have to say in recent memory, because it is possible. Like, right, at the turn of the century. I mean, that's a stunning thing to say out loud. I mean, I think we must have known it intrinsically, but it's like, wow, that. Yeah. I reported that right after the he was yeah. elected. Yeah. I said, and, and he says people, it he says it be in, the first in, in person a lot. He yeah, says he says it. It. Yeah. And but my I have a, we have an editor who edits the Axios uh, Chicago pod, uh, newsletter out of town and he put what? You know, in <laughs> and it's like is that is that true? And I said it, it is in recent memory at least. Yeah. Um, before we get to the break, another update on the migrant crisis. Two families and their children were removed from a Rogers Park shelter because they missed a curfew. Monica, what are those details? Well, um, they missed an 11 o'clock curfew and they were told, you know, can't break the rules. They said they've seen other people break the curfews. And so they've been trying to find other housing for them. They wanted to make sure it's housing that accepts families. And, you know, we we, also, we did a migrant story this week that had a stunning fact that, you know, we have 13,000 migrants here, according to the city, but only about a third have been sent by Greg Abbott. So I dug into like, well, who keeps sending them to Chicago when we we are just bursting at the seams? Why not send them to cities that have a little more capacity right now? What did now? you find? I found that it's um, NGOs in, in Texas, including Catholic Charities and Denver. Denver has gotten more than 14,000 migrants, but guess how many are still in the city? About 500. They 
hand out bus tickets to Chicago and train but who, tickets. Who is the at first it? it was the governor, and then Lori Lightfoot said, "Cut it out! Hey, we're all Democrats. Why are you doing this?" So he promised in January to cut it out, and now it's the uh, Denver Department of Human Services. They confirmed with me. They said, "Hey, if the migrants want to go there, we'll give them a ticket." So they're saying the migrants want to come to Chicago. Yeah. That's what they said. And I said, have you shown them the pictures of our police station floors? I went to the 14th district this week and my heart was broken. I mean, toddlers having, you know, just lying down on the floor and, and just you, you can hardly walk in there because it's all blankets on the floor. And this is not uncommon in all of our districts. Our wonderful panel of journalists are Monica Ang of Axios, Becky Beebe of Chalkbeat Chicago and Dan Petrella of the Chicago Tribune. They'll be sticking around. This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore, in for Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, it's our weekly news recap where we make sense of the week's top local and state stories. Before the break, we discussed Mayor Johnson's pick for the next police superintendent the same week he ousted Chicago's popular public health commissioner. But there's a lot more to get into. President Biden has declared a federal disaster following record-setting storms in Cook County that caused widespread flooding a month ago. Former President Donald Trump's fourth indictment. This time, Trump is charged in Georgia. Two people with Illinois connections are among those in hot water. Illinois is now the first state in the country to pass a law establishing earnings protections for minors who are featured in online videos. A trade association for the firearm industry says it has filed a legal challenge to a bill that Governor Pritzker signed on Saturday. Our panel is Chalkbeat Chicago Bureau Chief Becky Beebe, Monica Ang, Chicago reporter for Axios, and the Chicago Tribune state government reporter Dan Petrella. Dan, we're going to turn to state politics now. Governor Pritzker signed some 40 bills into law last Friday. Let's start with the new law aimed at gun manufacturers. That's right. Um, the bill aimed at gun manufacturers sort of tries to put um, guardrails around what they can do in their advertising. Um, it opens them up to to uh, civil liabilities. Um, and almost as soon as the, the bill was signed, a lawsuit was filed challenging it um, on, on First Amendment grounds. Um, this is yet another uh Another issue in which guns are related, where where the state is in court um, this time fighting on First Amendment grounds as opposed to uh, to Second Amendment grounds, um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how the how the courts deal with these First Amendment arguments. Basically, saying that this new state law is restricting the the free speech rights of of gun manufacturers to advertise their products as they see fit. What were some other laws that jumped out for you? Sure, um, you know one of the ones that got a lot of attention um, in Springfield this past spring allowed. Uh, businesses to choose to open uh, gender-neutral multiple occupancy bathrooms. Uh, a couple of years ago, the state made a law saying that any single occupancy bathroom should be um, uh, gender-neutral. This is uh, not a mandate, but an option for businesses who are interested in, in providing um, gender-neutral multi-occupancy bathrooms to be able to do it. The guidelines for how it would work. Um, it got a lot of attention from folks on the on the right, on the far right, um, who made all sorts of wild claims about you know. It, forcing people to do this or that sort of thing, um, and uh, uh, the governor signed it in, into law last week. Listen, when I have to go or my kid has to go and there's a single occupancy mail stall, you just go right in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just amazing how much um, attention and, and angst and fury there yeah. is over this. You know, you had one um, state senator from, from the Quad Cities area um, saying that, you know, if he was in the bathroom with his 10-year-old daughter and a man came in to use it, he would, uh, I'm not even sure if I can say this word on the radio, but beat the piss out of them. I was actually on the mm. Senate floor in the press box when that 
comment was made in everybody's room jaw in the room kind of dropped and um yeah just the the level of rhetoric over it is pretty oh you could amazing. lock the door and why would you even be in there with your 10 year old daughter yeah and seeing you yeah and so yeah and yeah but it's just this hysteria around bathrooms are just so political right now. Yeah. yeah and the new law lays out the way the stalls have to be configured how many you know uh, fixtures there have to be all that kind of stuff just the really nuts and bolts of how how it would work and it was interesting to see it become such a, a heated partisan issue and he also signed a bill that promotes salary transparency what are the details of that that's right um employers with i believe 15 or more employees are going to be required to post uh pay scales for jobs when they advertise them um starting in in 2025 this is aimed at actually letting people know what they might be paid when they apply for a job, I think any of us who have, um, uh, you know, applied for jobs know that it can be kind of this blind process where the employer is kind of trying to figure out, well, like, how much have you made at your previous jobs? And you're trying to figure mm-hmm. out, like, well, how much did you pay the person <laughs> who did before. this job before yeah. me? Um, and this is supposed to really address um, particularly um, gender and race-based pay gaps that I think we all know um, exist. I will say that I know they exist within our newsroom because our union did a study showing that they exist within our newsroom. Um, so I think... This is aimed at hopefully addressing a lot of those issues on a on a statewide level. And so it's businesses with 15 or more employees. They yes. have to include that. And that law takes effect in 2025. That's Monica, your colleague, Justin Kaufman, wrote about this uh, new law. Illinois is the first state to mandate compensation for child uh, social media influencers. Yeah. So, like, if you have a honey boo boo type child who's super <laughs> cute and everybody's watching them on YouTube and uh, TikTok, uh, you better set aside some money for that kid and stop stealing it from him. I mean, there are big questions about whether you should be exploiting your child for uh, for social media money, but at least now they're supposed to get paid when they turn eighteen uh, when you put aside this money at fifty. Yeah. Interesting. What do you think of that, Becky? Well, I mean, in a lot of ways, like you said, there are a lot of questions about exploitation. And certainly, like, if you have a child who is uh, doing what is arguably paid work now in this this world and in this economy, you have people making all kinds of money on social media. And I mean, I think it's I think it's fair. We've seen these proposals come up in other states. um, But to see Illinois. Um, pass a law, it's pretty pretty in, incredible, and I'd be curious to read more of the details. I didn't see like all of the nuts yeah, and bolts. And, and the fact that we're the first, that's super interesting. Do we have more cute kids doing cute things? On, on And what about cats and dogs? <laughs> well, right, and it's interesting because you would think, I mean, I think California and New York are other like big cities where people, you know, you have an entertainment industry and more of these people. Well, but we're not talking about child stars, like so many people are trying no, to No, 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 I know, yeah. but I mean like when you think about influencer culture, it's still very much is they like based in and around is that is that like people well, who is, used to be it, on reality TV become influencers? Not that those are the the minors, but well, yeah. I mean that little boy Ryan who sits there and opens gifts. I don't know where he lives. <laughs> right. He makes I mean, a lot I, yeah. Of money. I don't know <laughs> exactly. And I think some parents are bank. I mean, so many people think my kid is so cute. Maybe right. my child can go viral or right. or do something. And it's it's a small number, but. Uh, we had an expert on earlier this week. You know, this is the first step because we're in a new landscape. Exactly. You know, just making yeah. sure that the to me there's the like legal getting... questions about as 
as influencing and these social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram become the space. They're the new, you know, ABC, Full House, Child Star, you know. Right, and we see how a lot of child cable stars yeah, turn you know, out. out. Yeah, so it's like if that's the new version yeah. and it's Wild West right now, not regulated. Macaulay yeah. Culkin, here I come. <laughs> we've all heard those horror stories where like kids who did were like child stars in traditional Hollywood had all the money taken from them and they... Yeah. become adults and there's nothing left like their parents have totally exploited them. And we're starting to hear a little bit about that with social media. Yeah. You know, mom bloggers who their kids are speaking out about having been written about, you know, not the Yeah. you know, mom influencers who have used their their kids. So Yeah, yeah I think this is just the first step in what could continue to be debated and regulated. Uh, but there's another child bill <laughs> that the governor signed, and this is for 4-H and Future Farmers America Club members. Tell us about that, Becky. Yeah, so this is a bill that um, allows those students to uh, attend events and, and do their sort of FFA uh work study, if you will, um, agricultural work, um, and and get excused absences, which is pretty interesting. I know, like, broadly beyond just FFA, um, this question of absences has become more, um, a little bit heightened post-pandemic because you had skyrocketing rates of chronic absenteeism and you have kids. I mean, even in one of the stories I, I read about this bill passing, you know, and of course, they were miss, quote unquote missing school to go attend FFA events. Um, but yeah, you do have a lot of kids who are, are missing school for other reasons. But this bill would allow them to have excused absences for those um, types of sort of work service learning uh, opportunities, agricultural opportunities. And this bill, as well as the social media influencer um, bill, these were both bipartisan. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just wanted to note that. But he did, uh, the governor Pritzker did veto some legislation. Dan, environmentalists are cheering a veto involving a moratorium on nuclear power plants. That's right. And this was a little bit of a surprise. Um, the governor had had spoken during the spring about this proposal and said that he, um, you know, was somewhat supportive of the idea of these sort of smaller modular nuclear reactors that are sort of in development right now, that uh, one of the ways people are thinking about using them is putting them in places where um, coal or natural gas plants shut down to provide sort of more, um, some would argue, more stable power than wind or solar can without the carbon output of a fossil fuel burning plant. Um, But what the governor said is that a final change that was made to the bill before it was passed really opened the door to reactors of any size being built in Illinois, um, which he is not supportive of. He worries that that would lead to um, companies who build them. Constellation Energy is the one who owns all the nuclear plants in Illinois right now, um, getting massive government subsidies to build these plants. Um, You know, there's a new nuclear plant that opened in Georgia, I believe, earlier this year that ran billions of dollars over cost in like seven years beyond schedule. So um, there's there are concerns about um, if we're going to reopen the door to nuclear power in Illinois, to new nuclear power in Illinois, that we do it in a way that is protective of, of public safety. We're going to turn to some tragic news this morning. Is the funeral of the nine-year-old child, um, Sarah B. Medina, who was killed in front of her Portage Park home on August 5th. A law that went into effect July 1st is supposed to pay funeral expenses for murdered children. But sometimes columnist Rich Miller raised concerns about the law's lack of funding. Monica, can you fill us in? Sure, that the law was passed last year, but it had the caveat that it was subject to appropriation. 
I guess a lot of people thought, well, of course they've appropriated the money for it. Of course it was in the February um, budget, but it was not. Um, and so will the funeral expenses be paid? That's unclear. Um, uh, Department of Human Services says that they, they're they going to fix it. They're going to find the money and they can retroactively pay it back. But somehow this slipped through the cracks in terms of funding. But, you know, as, as Rich Miller points out, there's a lot of legislation that gets passed that's subject to appropriation. And somehow you're like, OK, well, rubber's going to hit the road. How do we pay for this? And nobody's quite sure. Um, but he also wrote in his column that, um, you know, that this isn't adequately engaged in the budget making process. Dan, what what was your reaction to that? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's interesting that, um, like Monica said, there are lots of programs that get created that lawmakers, you know, champion. They think they're good ideas, and then they just n- never are able to find the money for. There's one that comes to mind that was created like a decade or so ago, um, a state level gang crime witness protection program that, until I think this past year was never funded. Um, so it's one thing in, in covering Stringfield that you have to keep an eye out for is, is where the rhetoric matches the reality. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't always, you know, they yeah, look for that. Look for that little caveat in there. I, I covered a, a mental health bill that, you know, we all know mental health for students is really, mm-hmm. you know, we're having a crisis. And they said, yes, we definitely should give more more money for mental health for, for college students. But that was never funded until this year. And Illinois officials say the state will cover funeral expenses of a migrant child who died on a bus journey from Texas. Becky, what are the mm-hmm. details? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, a horrible, um, horrible news story is all I can say is um, this this young three-year-old, I believe it was, uh, on the bus um, coming from Texas uh, suffered a, a cardiac arrest and died. Um, and the state has said that they will uh, step in and provide the funding for the service, um, which I guess is taking place over the border in Indiana, um, but given the sort of uh, extreme sort of sensitive nature of the situation, they felt it was right to um, step in and provide support for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was a very yeah. difficult one to read out. I was I was crying reading it. So, um this is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to our weekly news recap. Our panel today is Becky Vivi of Chalkbeat Chicago, Monica Ang of Axios, and Dan Portello of the Chicago Tribune. You can email your questions and comments on these stories right now to reset at WBEZ.org or tweet us at WBEZ Reset. Another story on our radar, Dan, jurors are hearing testimony in the trial of a mannequin aide including secretly recorded conversations. Yes, we've been hearing a lot of secretly uh, recorded conversations um, airing in the Dirksen Federal Courthouse this uh, spring and summer. Um, This is the trial of Tim Mapes, who was um, sort of uh, Mike Madigan's right-hand man in in many things. He was um, his longtime chief of staff. He was the clerk of the Illinois House, and he was the executive director of the Democratic Party of Illinois. Um, He was ousted in a, um, a sexual harassment allegation an inspector general report came out that he had sort of created a hostile work environment. Um, he was known for his um, very closely guarding of Mike Madigan's time, not letting people um, anywhere near the speaker, um, sort of being um, very hard-nosed about, uh, as people like to say, keeping the trains running on time. And he is accused of lying to uh, a federal grand jury who is investigating Madigan. Um, and I believe today, actually, the prosecutors just wrapped up their case We've heard um, all sorts of testimony from Springfield insiders about um, the kind of things 
that those of us who who cover the state and cover Springfield uh, wish we could hear the conversations that are going on behind closed doors, um, the way um, you know power is sort of wielded and, and used um, within those inner circles in Springfield. It's been very fascinating. I wish sort of wish I could sit in the courtroom and, and hear it all, as opposed to just having to um, read my colleagues and others' excellent coverage of the trial. But it's been it's been very fascinating to watch. And earlier this week. President Trump, along, former President Trump, along with 18 other people, were indicted in Georgia. And two folks from the Chicago area are on that indictment list. Monica, what do we know about them? Well, one of them worked with um, the the musical star formerly known as Kanye, that's Ye and R. Kelly. And, and what did what did she uh, tweet out about um, about someone's being crucified like yeah, yes, she, she quoted, told me that. Via <laughs> told that. You were, this was yeah, yeah that reporting. Was yours, yeah, yeah, that uh, working with R. Kelly and Ye has taught her about how people. I don't have it in front of me. Um, just <laughs> being a but, crisis manager, media. Yeah, and in the words of Ye, who she you know deeply respects. Um, they were trying you know, to crucify her like Christ. Yeah. I believe yeah. was the, yeah. the phrase. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but she and this this um, Lutheran pastor uh, Stephen Cliffgard Lee from a church in Orland Park are accused of trying to uh, influence the testimony of um, of Ruby Freeman, who is a, a election judge down in Fulton County, Georgia, who many of us saw testify before the January sixth committee. Um, and yeah, just surprised to see these names pop up in in the indictment. Yeah. Um, just it really shows you how I think widespread at least all this allegedly was. And the publicist's name um, is Travion Kuti. So along with that, Orland Park pastor. Um, and then we know the man who set fire to a Peoria Planned Parenthood was sentenced this week. Becky, what happened there? Right. So this was an incident that occurred a couple of days after um, Governor Pritzker signed law uh, law that protected reproductive health care legislation in Illinois and protected out-of-state abortion seekers um, uh, who, you know, are now in states where abortion is illegal. And this person uh, threw flames into a Planned Parenthood and it, it burnt. And that, that center hasn't been able to reopen. Um, they're saying it may reopen early next year. Uh, but he was sentenced to 10 years and ordered to uh, ordered him to pay close to 1.5 million dollars for that act of arson. Our panel of journalists Becky Vivi of Chalkbeat Chicago, Monica Ang of Axios, and Dan Pachella of the Chicago Tribune will be sticking around. Back now with more reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha and Simons, and you're listening to our weekly news recap. Our panel this week is Chalkbeat Chicago Bureau Chief Becky Vivi, Monica Ang, Chicago reporter for Axios, and the Chicago Tribune state government reporter Dan Petrella. Um, so the air and water show is roaring in town this weekend, and we can hear them from Navy Pier. But the big event going on in Springfield right now is the Illinois State Fair. This is day eight, I believe. Republicans had their day yesterday. Democrats made the rounds on Wednesday for the Governor's Day at the fair. Let's listen to what Governor J.B. Pritzker had to say. We're the party that stands up for workers' rights. We're the party that stands up for human rights. We're the party that stands up for civil rights and voting rights and reproductive rights. Dan, you've been to the State Fair, right? Set the scene for us. I have, yes. It's uh, um, 
always a very hot but fun time in Springfield. Um, I was a local reporter in, in Springfield at the State Journal Register for a few years earlier in my career, so I spent a lot of time out at the fairgrounds. But the political days are, are really interesting, um, you know, amid the backdrop of the Ferris wheel and carnival rides and the giant slide and corn dogs and all that. Um, you have the, the contrast of the two parties here in Illinois. And really right now, um, I don't think the contrast could be starker than it is. You have the Democrats who control all statewide offices, 14 of 17 congressional seats, both U.S. Senate seats. They have record or near record supermajorities in both houses of the legislature. They have a five to two advantage on the state Supreme Court. Um, and then you have the Republican Party that's really sort of trying to find its footing here in Illinois, and um, it's seen its base of power in the collar counties around Cook County just completely erode over the past couple decades. Um, uh, with the governor speaking to reproductive rights there, a big part of that we've seen recently is, um, you know, the the um, maybe more moderate, middle-of-the-road suburban female voters moving to the Democratic Party where maybe in the past um, they would have supported Republicans on, on fiscal issues and things like that. Um, and in these non-election year years at the fair, it's really um, a chance for the parties to kind of set what their message is going to be going into next year's election. And we saw from the Democrats, they're going to be talking about Donald Trump a lot. They're going to be talking about abortion and reproductive rights a lot. And on the Republican side, um, it's a little less clear what exactly their, their strategy is going to be. Um, they may try to paint Democrats as being too extreme on abortion. I'm not sure how well that will sell. Um, they also will be trying to talk a lot about Mike Madigan because he is set to go on trial at the Dirksen Federal Courthouse uh, next spring. So um, that will be um, interesting to see how that factors in elections next year here in Illinois because they've had sort of a mixed record of trying to use Madigan against the Democrats in the past. The big draw at the fair is not the politicians talking about their agenda, but the deep fried delicacies. I've never been to an Illinois State Fair. I have been to Minnesota when I was a reporter. Well, I didn't cover it, but I felt like I had to go try these <laughs> deep fried delicacies. Dan, what have been some of your favorites over the years? You know, my personal favorite is kind of boring. The one I'm always sure to get is a, um, I'm going to make not make sure I pronounce the name right, but Vose's Corn Dog. It's actually not too far from the director's lawn where the politicians do all their Freshly speeches. Dipped. That's right. Um, that's the thing I'm sure I'm sure never to miss. Um, but I do enjoy, you know, a deep fried Snickers or a funnel cake or, or something along those lines every now and then. Um, there's also a booth there from 17th Street Barbecue, which is um, actually down in southern Illinois in Murfreesboro. Um, but it's an excellent barbecue place and they have a booth at the fair that I like to stop by, too, when I get down there. Have you tried the deep fried Oreo? Um, they have those. Monica, yeah. you have probably was, eaten those, everything in a state fair and written about it. Last year I did a big story. With, yes. I ate a ton, but I had the uh, deep fried horseshoe. Which, oh, you know the what, horseshoe the classic sandwich. Yeah, that's uh, right. that's cheese sauce and fries and burger wrapped in a tortilla, deep fried. Oh my god! Flaming, oh flaming hot Cheetos cheeseburger. Did you eat the whole thing, Monica? I well, I shared it with my partner and his son because I had to eat ten of these. And then another <laughs> oh my one. God. They take a block of Swiss cheese and they dip it in a rye batter and then they deep fry it and it's like deep fried rye outside the Swiss cheese. The rainbow grilled cheese. Okay, wait, 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 wait. We gotta, we, we gotta back up. So, how? Well, I have a tummy ache hearing that, but how was it? It was actually good. You put a lot actually of, um, good. Yeah, the horseshoe or the, well, the which one are we talking about? about the horseshoe. Oh, oh, yeah. oh the horseshoe. I, I love a horseshoe, but no. it was deep. Yeah. I've eaten many horseshoes, but I've never had one deep fried. I'm going to have to go back. Oh, yeah, you got to go back. They wrapped in a tortilla, so like a burrito? Yeah, it's like a horseshoe egg roll. Oh, my God. And then deep fried. But the size of like a small. Yeah, huge. Like like a small small baby. (laughs) 
Um, and then candy melons, where they take watermelon and then they pour lots of sweet syrup in it. That was interesting, too. Oh <laughs> Good interesting, God. bad interesting. Uh, probably too sweet for me, but but interesting nonetheless. What about the deep fried Twinkie? Deep fried Twinkie, you know, they're kind of a dime a dozen. Um, so, but I mean, yeah. Oh, okay. It's like, it's like deep fried stuff and then like the soft molten cakey center with the, with the cream. Um. Anything else that was? I like the, the rainbow um, grilled cheese sandwich because it's like, well, they what, put a, what is a rainbow? Okay, so they put a whole bunch of food coloring <laughs> on the cheese. <laughs> they put it in there, and then you pull it apart, and then you have a rainbow of cheese, and you have like one piece of bread on this side, another half of the sandwich on this side, and a rainbow in front of you. Uh, I can, I can, I can send you guys. I can tweet out my wait. And what, and what gives it the color? I'm uh, food coloring. Food coloring. Okay. Yeah. Artificial okay. food coloring. Okay. Well, if anyone is uh, their stomach is rumbling because they want to try these things, the state fair wraps up on Sunday. So this is your weekend. This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore, Impressasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to our weekly news recap. Our panel today is Becky Beebe of Chalk Beach, Chicago, Monica Ang of Axios, and Dan Bracella of the Chicago Tribune. You can email your questions and comments on these stories right now at to reset at WBEZ.org or tweet us at WBEZ Reset. We're going to move from Springfield to the south side of Chicago, where the University of Chicago agreed to pay more than $13 million dollars for colluding with other universities to limit financial aid. It's a bit confusing. Becky, can you help make sense of it? I, I don't know that I can. No, I'll, I'll, I'll try to jump <laughs> okay. in. Yeah, Monica so might be so they, they got together with a bunch of Ivy League uh, universities to say, okay, this is going to be our formula. And unfortunately, that formula is not supposed to take into account people's ability to pay, but the charges that it did. So if someone's on a waiting list and, um, and they don't need as much financial aid as the guy who's also on the waiting list, the, the charges are that they will give it to the person who can actually pay more of it. And that's why um, it's a problem for them to do that. And there was other news involving the University of Chicago, this time the hospital, where apparently a fight broke out in their emergency room. Yeah, it was uh, a fight involving many people. um, And uh, some of the workers got hurt and injured in it. They didn't find any weapons. But, um, you know, it just highlights that um, we did an Axios story showing this month that being a healthcare worker is actually one of the most dangerous jobs in the nation. Mm-hmm. The injuries for them have gone up every year. And that was actually one of the complaints of the Laredo workers um, who were striking earlier this month at Laredo Hospital, saying that, you know, there, there's just not enough safety around it. So they said they're going to beef up security around there to, um, to, to deal with these issues. But, they, but what our story said was that during COVID, just more and more healthcare workers were involved in, you know, in injuries on the job because of violence. Over in West Suburban DuPage County, more than 50 former patients are coming forward about an OBGYN. They allege he was drunk on the job and acted inappropriately. Let's hear what former patient Elizabeth Gudella had to say. I just feel really bad for my previous self and that I didn't register how awful it was. And um, there's just been a lot of um, different scenarios that he put me into that are very wrong so coming forward is just helpful to me to these women behind me and then um anybody that this is happening to 
So, yeah, that was um, they, they've, five new lawsuits were filed against uh, Dr. Gynecologist and Obstetrician Dr. Vernon Cannon and his former employer, the Dooley Healthcare, formerly um, DuPage Medical Group, that he engaged in inappropriate behavior with them. You know, some said that, you know, he commented on their tattoos and then wanted to show his that he was inebriated. They, you know, for the record, deny all wrongdoing. Uh, and they said that that alleged behavior is inconsistent with their medical practice, um, but they're not allowed to say more because of the lawsuit. Uh, but the, that number of women, it's hard to ignore. And Cannon left his practice. In, That's right. That's in right. 2020. 2020. Yeah. And more lawsuits for Northwestern University this week, Becky. Yeah, so the uh, three former assistant baseball coaches are suing Northwestern, uh, basically alleging uh, uh, retaliation for their being let go and that the head coach um, was a known bully, uh, which is just interesting, too. I think it's kind of yet another case stemming from Northwestern's athletic department. Um, Obviously, we have some of the allegations uh, from former players in the... um, um, oh my gosh, I'm trying to think in the on the football team. Yes, and so um, I think really it raises some questions about what it, what sort of like systems are in place in that athletic department or were in place in that athletic department for people to feel like it was a safe and healthy uh, work environment. And you know, sports locker rooms, who knows what's going on? But if you have uh, a coach who's a known bully, I mean, we'll see how this one winds its way through courts yeah. and what it come what comes of it, but. And a longtime former journalism professor at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, made national headlines this week. Dan, you had a class with Eric Meyer. Fill us in. I did. Um, He is the publisher of a newspaper in Kansas called The Marion Record, and I had him, um, gosh, almost 20 years ago now, uh, for a graphics and design class, which was notoriously uh, one of the toughest, if not the toughest class in the journalism program at U of I. Um, And when I saw these headlines, I was just like, man, they picked a fight with the wrong guy. you know, he was he was uh, a really good teacher, a very tough teacher. Um, you know, he would tell you at the beginning of, of class that uh, each semester that if he caught you in the computer lab during class time on something that was not classwork, he would unplug your computer. And he was not lying because I had that happen <laughs> on at least one occasion. Um, but basically, reporters at his paper had gotten a tip about a restaurateur in the town who um, allegedly... Um, had gotten a DUI and was still driving without a license. They were looking into it. They hadn't actually published a story on it. I believe had decided not to publish a story on it um, when police came in and took records, computers, pretty much everything from their newspaper office. Um, Professor Meyer's mother ended up, who was also co-publisher of the paper, ended up uh, passing away, he believes, at least partially due to the stress from the situation. Um, but it has since been found that the the police acted improperly. Their materials were returned, and now the Kansas Bureau of Investigations is is looking into the situation. Well, that's all that we have with our panel today. We've had Dan Petrella of the Chicago Tribune, Becky Vivi of Chalkbeat Chicago, Monica Ang of Axios. Thank you all for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great weekend.